Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Thanks be to God for this word. I love that scripture. Oh. I love that scripture, reader. <laughs> for those of you feeling a bit creeped out, that's my wife, Claire. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we can look at God's Word together. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your wisdom as we've just sung. We pray that you would humble us before your truth, help us to do your will, and to live your way. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. You know, our, our home says a lot about us. You know, the way you decorate, the way you organize your home, the way you spend your routines at home, you know, all, the way you do all these things, say a lot about yourself, right? You know, your, your personality, your likes, your interests, your values, your priorities. You know, one of the best ways to uh, let someone know you is to invite them home, right? That, that's what we enjoy doing. We enjoy inviting people home and, you know, just spending some time with us and seeing how we live, seeing how we treat our kids. Uh, seeing how Claire and I talk to each other. I mean, these are little things that we do, and we, we love people to kind of come into our homes and to see all that, because our home says a lot about how we live, you know, about the kind of people that we are. And I'm sure it's the same for you all as well, that if I were to go into your homes, I'll get a much, much better idea of the kind of person that you are. You know, this idea of our homes saying a lot about us, it's not a new one. In, in fact, this is quite a biblical idea, you know, how, many, how many of you know the story, the Old Testament story of the Queen of Sheba? Well, okay, don't put up your hands. <laughs> uh, this is quite a familiar story. So the Queen of Sheba, she traveled all the way from probably what was North Africa to come and visit Solomon, King Solomon in Jerusalem. So she, she went on a home visit. And her purpose in visiting Solomon was to test him with hard questions. It, it's a bit like, you know, coming on Sunday and going to the seekers class or going, coming on Tuesday and asking hard questions, right? So this is what the Queen of Sheba did. And if you read the story in 1 Kings, what is striking is that she doesn't simply come to hear Solomon's wisdom. She comes to see for herself by spending time in Solomon's house, in his, in his home. And, you know, this is what she says after spending time with Solomon in Jerusalem, in his house. You know, the this is what she said, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Now, I love that line in the middle of her response. She says, I did not believe the reports until my own eyes had seen it. 
Now, we say seeing is believing, right? And the Queen of Sheba didn't believe what she heard about Solomon. She didn't believe about what she, about what she heard about Solomon's God until she saw it for herself. Now, one question that people ask quite commonly is, you know, where do we see God today? You know, where would we see God today? Right? You know, how, is this still possible? Can we still see for ourselves? Well, I would say the answer is yes. Now, the Bible says the church is the dwelling place of God. So, so it makes sense. You know, if someone asks, where do you see God today? I would say, come and spend time with the people of God. Because this is where the living God dwells. It's with His people. Uh, this tells us that our life together, as the people of God, our, our life together matters. Our, our life together and I'm not thinking just about our Sunday services, but our life together throughout the week, the way we do community, the way we relate to one another, the, the way we love one another, our, our life together shows that God is real. Our, our life together enables someone to actually see God. You know, our life together should show what our Heavenly Father is like. Now, that's why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Now, he writes 1 Timothy so that we might know how we should behave as God's family. You know, Paul tells us that we are the church of the living God, a pillar and foundation of the truth, holding up the truth of God, and indeed, displaying the reality of God by how we live together as the people of God. Now, we, the way we live is meant to be a display of God's glory. You know, it's not just what we do, but it's how we live that displays the glory of God. So just three points from our text today in, in just thinking about this idea of living God's way to display God's glory. Number one, we live God's way because God is good. We see this in verses three to seven. You know, there may be certain people in our lives whom we uh, look up to as role models. You know, I think maybe we all have someone that we look up to in that way. And, and you know, maybe the more we get to know the person, the, the more we want to emulate them, you know, the more we are moved by their example. In a similar way, the, the more we know God, the more we want to become like Him. You know, it's not enough to, to simply live God's way because we know we should do, we should do it out of a sense of duty. You know, living God's way is not just mere obedience. I mean, it is obedience, but so much more than just mere obedience. Living God's way is it's because our hearts are, are captured by the beauty of God. You know, we, we've spent time with Him, we, we know Him from His Word, we spend time with His people, and, and the more we know God, the, the more we want our lives to look like His. I mean, that, that's what it means to, to live God's way. We, we want to live God's way because our hearts delight in God. We know that He's good. And in verses 3 to 7, Paul tells us how God is good in order to shape how we live as His people. He tells us in verse 3, God is our Savior. He has shown us grace and mercy to save us from our sins. You know, why do we need saving? Why do we need saving? Well, God made us all in His image to know Him and to worship Him. But every one of us, every single one of us, have, we've all turned away from Him. We've all turned away from our Creator. And we've all failed to worship Him as we should as the only true and living God. And we've turned away and worshipped other stuff. We've worshipped ourselves. And because of this, the Bible says we, we rightfully deserve God's judgment against us. But God as Saviour, God in His amazing grace and mercy, saves us from Himself. God saves us from His wrath, His judgment against us. And the Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the judgment of sinners. God, God is not some sadistic God who is just looking to trip us up. No, He takes no pleasure in judgment. Verse 4 says, He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, all peoples. God has this amazing global concern for the nations, you know, for people from every language, culture, ethnicity. You know, he wants all kinds of people to hear the gospel and to know the truth about Jesus. Because there's one God, 
And because there's only one God, there's only one God for all nations. That's what Paul tells us in verse 5. And, and this one God calls out to all peoples and nations, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There is no other saviour except for this one God. And this one God has sent His Son to be our mediator. You know, a mediator is like a, a, someone who comes between two parties and brings them together to be reconciled. So Paul tells us that Jesus is the mediator whom God has sent, the, the go-between between God and man. And because Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man, He can represent God to us and He can represent us to God. And he's the only way for us to return to God. And Paul goes on to say in these verses that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. You know, a, a ransom, the, the ransom price to free us from sin and death by dying in our place on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that our sins can be washed away, so that we can be given new life. You, know, you might be wondering, how, how do I know that God is good? How do I know that I can trust this God? Is, is, he, is he worthy of my trust? Is, is he worthy of me giving my whole life to him? Like, like we saw Noah express that obedience to God. Is, is he worthy of that kind of obedience? Paul says, yes. Because this God is amazingly good. As Paul tells us in verses 3 to 7. Now this is how we know that God is good. He's lavished his goodness and his grace upon us through His Son, so that we might live God's way as God's people. So we live God's way because God is good. Second point, we live God's way by praying God's way. Verses 1 and 2. Our good God is a, is a missionary God, as, we, as, we've, as we've heard. He desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, this God is full of mercy is full of compassion for the nations. And he wants his people, us, to share his concern for all peoples. Now, we live God's way when our hearts and our prayers are shaped by God's heart for the world. Now, we live God's way when our hearts are moved by his compassion. Our hearts are changed by his mercy. And he wants us to pray compassionate prayers for all kinds of people including those in positions of authority. Now, God has given us, His people, the task of asking, praying, interceding, and giving thanks for all people. Now, this encourages us to expand the scope of our prayers. You know, I must confess that sometimes in my prayer life, I find that all, the, who, all whom I pray for are just my family and close friends. You know, every time, family, close friends. But, but these verses challenge us to actually broaden the scope of our prayers. You know, uh, a preacher once made this statement, right? Do our prayers ever leave the front door of our houses? You know, do our prayers ever leave the front door of our houses? Or are we just always concerned with our immediate circles? Well, these, these verses challenge us to expand the scope of our prayers. Why? Because this God is a missionary God who desires all peoples to be saved. So He wants us to pray big prayers indeed for all the nations. Well, what does that look like practically? Pray for the foreigners whom God has brought to Singapore. Pray for the non-Singaporeans whom you know in your life, whether at work or in your communities. Pray for the government. Pray for your bosses, you know, those in authority over you in the workplace. Pray for those in authority in our schools. Pray for the teachers in our midst, many teachers in our midst, pray for principals and teachers in schools that they would know what it means to uh, follow God. You know, pray for people to know Jesus, ha have, a, have a missionary heart that desires the salvation of the nations. And pray for God's help to live godly lives in this world so that we might point others to Christ. I mean, that, that's Paul's encouragement, right? You pray for the leaders so that Christians might be able to live godly and dignified lives. You know, we pray for conditions that enable us to follow Jesus well in this world. 
Point three, so how else do we live God's way? Number three, we live God's way as godly men and women. So good news is that we're already at point three. <laughs> the bad news is that point three is the longest point. So. <laughs> so point three, we live God's way as godly men and women. So God calls us to live as men and women who fulfill his mission of making Christ known among the nations. So what does that look like for men? What does that look like for women? For men, God calls us to be examples of prayerfulness. That's what the men are supposed to do. Verse 8, the men should pray. The men should pray. You know, when we pray for others, we reflect God's mercy and compassion. You know, when the, when the men are prayerful, it shows that the men are humble before God. You know, that, that's the kind of men we need. Men who are prayerful and humble before God. And Paul says the men are to pray in holiness. God says in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Lifting holy hands in 1 Timothy 2, lifting holy hands is more about the posture of our hearts than about our physical posture. You know, holy hands represent hearts that have been purified by God. And we, we lift our hands as a symbol that our hearts are clean before God. You know, it's almost like showing the palm of our hands that you know, we have done, our consciences are clear. We, we come before God with clean hearts. You know, that's what it means to lift holy hands before God. The men are to pray in holiness. The men are to pray in love and peace without anger and quarreling. You know, there was this unity in the Ephesian church that Paul was writing to. You know, false teaching had come and had led some people astray, and, and people were quarreling, probably the men. Yeah, the men were quarreling and fighting with one another. The relationships in the church were a mess because of this anger and quarreling that was going on. So Paul steps into that situation and says, hey, look guys, stop fighting. Stop fighting and start praying. You know, simple advice, right? Stop fighting and start praying. Why? Because our, our unity matters for our mission. Our unity as God's people matters for God's mission. You know, think, think about Jesus' prayer in John 17. What, what did he pray for? What was the one thing that Jesus really prayed for in John 17? You know, his, last, his last recorded prayer before the cross, what do you pray for? Jesus prayed that we might be one. He prayed that we might be one. Why do you pray that we might be one? So that the world might believe that the Father had sent him to be the Savior for sinners. You know, that, that's how important unity is for the mission of God's people. You know, the, de the devil might not be able to make us stop believing in the gospel. But the devil can cause us to be so distracted by disunity that we stop proclaiming the gospel. You know, how, how many of you find messy relationships exhausting? I think we all do, right? Difficult relationships are always exhausting, right? They, they kind of burn our emotional energy. This unity in the church is exhausting. This unity in the church is exhausting. You know, we this unity in the church causes us to be so preoccupied with dealing with discontentment that we have little energy left for the mission. That, that's what the devil does, right? He, that's why he sows discord, so that, we have, so that God's people have no energy for mission because we're so distracted, fighting fires, you know, dealing with discontentment in the life of the church. You no, know, we, we argue over opinions, over preferences, and as a result, we lose sight of what really matters, which is the mission of God. So Paul says, stop fighting, start praying. Stop fighting, start praying. You know, th this is a wonderful quote by D.A. Carson. You know, Carson is coming to speak uh, here, you know, to do a conference here in Singapore in March, so, so do sign up if you can. And this is a wonderful quote from him, from one of his books. Because all of us would be wiser if we would resolve never to put people down 
accept on our prayer lists, right? It's a good practice. Don't put someone down unless you're writing down their name so that you can pray for them. You know, and, and from personal experience, I can say that it's very hard to bear a grudge against someone. It's very hard to remain angry against someone if I'm praying for that person regularly. Right? We just can't pray with the person with a good conscience if we are still angry or harboring grudges against that person. That's why Paul says, stop fighting. Start praying. That's how God softens our hearts towards one another. Brothers, let me address the men. Brothers, do we realize that we are responsible for the spiritual temperature of Grace Baptist Church? You know, our, our holiness, our prayerfulness, our relationships with one another, we either help or we hinder the health of the church. Now, brothers, I, I say this humbly before you all. Now, we need to examine ourselves honestly before God. Brothers, every single one of us, we need to examine ourselves before God. How is God calling us to repent and to renew our commitment to Christ? Right now, this moment, how is God calling you, brother, to repent and to renew your commitment to Christ? How is He calling you to holiness? How is He calling you to prayerfulness? How is He calling you to reconcile that broken relationship? You now, the church needs godly men who are strong in the Lord, who love His truth, and who show that they love His truth by loving one another. And that's, that's what Paul is calling, that's what God is calling us as men in His church. Now, the church needs godly women too. In verse 9, Paul begins his instructions to women in the church, and he begins with the word, likewise. Yeah. Likewise, verse 9. So Paul is saying, you know, women are to pursue godliness just like the men. Likewise. Women, God is calling you to be truly beautiful by adorning yourselves with modesty, self-control, and good works. You know, you know, I think Peter kind of echoes that in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. God's calling the women to be truly beautiful in His sight. You know, I, I, I'm not sure, women, you know, maybe you find this very liberating. You know, because women in this world can often become slaves to worldly standards of beauty. You know, elaborate hairstyles, jewelry, expensive clothing, you know, these things are not necessarily wrong in themselves. But in the culture of New Testament times, these things, you know, hairstyles, jewelry, expensive clothing, these, these things were status symbols, you know, and perhaps as they still are today. They're status, they, were, they were status symbols used for seduction or for showing off. Right? So that's why Paul says, you know, don't, don't adorn yourselves with these things. Not because these things are wrong in themselves, but, but because these things are used for ungodly purposes, you know, status symbols. So Paul says, you know, godly women would not use these things to show off or to seduce. And we have to acknowledge that women face tremendous pressure from society to, to look a certain way. You know, women face a lot of pressure to be beautiful according to worldly standards of beauty. You know, you just, just walk out and you know, all the ads that you see, all the magazines that you read, I mean, they're filled with messages that encourage women to look a certain way, to conform to certain standards of beauty. It's, it's tremendously pressurizing for women. You know, they, they face pressure from society. They, they face pressure from men. They face pressure from other women, especially their own mothers. <laughs> right? Mothers say, how come you look that way? You know, why don't you go lose weight? <laughs> why don't you wear something nicer? You know? Otherwise, no man will want you. Right? I mean, so women, women say those kinds of things to their daughters right, all the time. Women are under tremendous pressure 
No, low body image is a huge problem among women and, and teenage girls, right? I mean, you can read the statistics about that, but low body image is a tremendous issue in our world today. You know, I, I read uh, in 2016, Dove, you know, Dove, the company that sells cosmetics, Dove did a survey of 11,000 females in 13 countries, and they pulled some women in Singapore as well. Guess how many women in Singapore regarded themselves as beautiful? Guess what was the percentage? What percentage of Singaporean women polled in the Dove survey regarded themselves as beautiful? 2%. 2%. It's, it's staggering, right? So generally, you know, if you, so if you go up to a woman and ask, do you think you're beautiful? No. No, not at all. You know, I, I don't look that way. I don't dress that way. You know, I'm not beautiful. It, it's, it's a terrible place to be for women. You know, men, men suffer from a different problem, right? Men think we're always better looking than we really are. <laughs> men, men don't suffer from low body image issues. No, we have high body image issues. You know, fashions, fashions and looks, they come and go. But this passage, this passage tells us that true beauty lasts forever. That's really liberating, isn't it? God is holding out the hope of true beauty to women. You want to be beautiful? This is what it looks like. And this beauty is imperishable. And, and, the, and your creator will see you and say, yes, you are truly beautiful in my sight. And, and his opinion, I think, matters more than any other opinion in this world. True beauty means living God's way. And what makes a woman truly attractive is a heart and life that are transformed by God's goodness and grace. And, and I want to say a word especially to the single women in our midst. You know, single women, God wants you to pursue Christ and true beauty. So only date someone who wants the same thing for you, Christ and true beauty. You know, a pastor friend of mine gave this advice to singles. He says, run after Jesus. And then as you run after Jesus, look around and see who is running beside you. you know, that, that's wonderful dating advice for singles. You know, Chinese New Year is coming, right? And during Chinese New Year, you know, all, all the singles dread Chinese New Year, right? Why? Because the inevitable question is, when are you getting married? <laughs> but don't, don't, don't be pressured to settle. You know, I say this to the singles, especially the single women, never be pressured to settle. Trust God. He's good. And then the rest of us, don't pressure singles to get married. <laughs> you know, especially parents. And especially don't pressure singles to marry the first warm body that comes along, right? No. Hold out the hope of godliness. Hey, pursue Christ and look around to see who is pursuing Christ with you. That's a person you want to settle with. And a word to the men again. Brothers, we have to be honest, right? What, what sort of beauty are we looking for in a woman? What sort of beauty are we looking for in a woman? You know, is, is our definition of beauty like this, 1 Timothy 2? Or is our definition of beauty more like the world? Or, or do we have these double standards, right? Saying, yeah, yeah, Christian women should be really godly, but I want to find a nice-looking girlfriend. You know, you know do, we, do we have these double standards going on in our lives? So men, what, what kind of women are we attracted by? Husbands, are we encouraging our wives towards this kind of beauty, to be truly beautiful in God's sight? You know, if you're married, God has given you the privilege of shepherding your wife towards true beauty, helping her to grow in godliness in the sight of God, which is truly beautiful. Are you cherishing that as a husband? Are you valuing that about your wife? May God help us. So what does it mean for women to live God's way in the church? In verse 11, Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. You know, first notice that women are expected to learn. They're expected to learn and study God's word. You know, this was countercultural during the New Testament times. You know, during those times, rabbis would not even take women as disciples. Rabbis wouldn't teach women. They would only teach men. 
So Paul's words here, he just assumes that women will learn and women are part of learning God's word along with the men in the public gatherings of God's church. Now, women need to be equipped with God's truth as well, as, as Carrie prayed so well earlier in the service. Women need to be in Scripture, growing in God's word so that they can live God's way in a word, God's way in a world that, tell, that lies about what it means to be a woman. In the context of 1 Timothy, false teaching had led astray some of the women in the church. And as a result, the, the, these women who were led astray, they refused to submit themselves to the right teaching of God's word. And, and God is concerned, not just that women learn, but God is concerned with the heart attitude of women as well. You know, how are they learning? That's why Paul says women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. No, now, now, quietly there doesn't mean that women don't say anything at all. Right? That, that's not what the word actually is getting at. You know, indeed, the, the Bible says in, in the public gatherings of God's people, women should pray, women should read scripture, women should sing. Women are even welcome to speak encouragement to the rest of the church during those gatherings of God's people. So quietly doesn't mean I zip up and don't say anything. You know, that's, that's not what quietly means. Rather, it's quietly with all submissiveness which means that a woman is to be humble and teachable, to have a heart that is open to God's word. And incidentally, that's, that's true for men as well. You know, it, it, it means to be open to receiving God's truth. That, that's how a woman should learn. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, <coughs> women are not permitted to teach. Okay, so what does this mean? I know this could be a troubling verse to some. It's a controversial verse in the New Testament. Okay, so what, what does this not mean? Now, this verse, verse 12, doesn't mean that women are not allowed to teach at all. Right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that women shouldn't teach at all. Why? Why do I say this? Because in Titus 2, Paul encourages the older women to teach the younger women. Right? Titus 2. Older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Women are to teach. Now, that's, why you, that, that's why Paul wants the women to be equipped with God's Word, so that you're able to teach other women, to train them and grow them in Christ. In fact, in another passage, Colossians 3.16, Paul encourages all the members of the church, men and women, to be full of God's Word, so that we are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So this is what we should be doing all the time as God's people. We should be teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So all of us need to be equipped with God's word, women included. So, so, what, does Paul, so what does Paul mean when he says women are not permitted to teach? Paul is thinking about a specific context of teaching. Paul is referring to the gathered uh, meetings of the church like this one. When the church gathers once a week in corporate worship, women are not to teach, meaning that the men have responsibility for preaching and teaching God's word. So, so that's the context that, that Paul is thinking about when he says women are not permitted to teach. He's thinking about context like this. When the church gathers, it's a corporate worship service. We gather together as a church publicly. That's when the men have responsibility to preach and teach God's word. Paul goes on to say, women are also not to exercise authority over a man. So in the New Testament church, who had authority in the church? The elders were the ones entrusted with the authority to preach, to pastor, and to lead the church as overseers. This was the role of the elders in the church. And in the Bible, the, the title elder, pastor, and overseer, they all refer to the same office. Right? We'll talk about this more next week when we look at 1 Timothy 3, but elder, pastor, overseer, they're all the same person, all the same office. Uh, so what Paul is saying is that a, a woman shouldn't serve as an elder, pastor, overseer. When, when, when Paul says a woman is not to exercise authority over a man, he's thinking, a woman can't be an elder, a woman can't be a pastor, a woman can't be an overseer, because those three titles refer to the same office. 
the Bible calls women to submit to the preaching, teaching, and leadership of the elders of the church. And, and when we think about submission, you know, I think that, that's a loaded term for many of us, right? We think about submit, we, we think of inferiority, we, we think about weakness, we think about a position of being oppressed. But, but that's not biblical submission. Biblical submission is not about those things. Biblical submission is about following Jesus. You know, think about Jesus. He's fully God, equal with the Father. Now, Jesus is not inferior to the Father in any way. But Philippians 2 tells us that he submitted to the Father's will by going to the cross. Right? So, so that's the kind of submission that Scripture thinks, of, thinks about. Not inferior, not inferiority, but a willingness to follow Jesus just as he submitted to the Father. You know, in this fallen world, leaders often abuse their authority. It's true. Leaders use their authority, they use others to serve themselves. And, and women, you're not called to submit to ungodly abusive leadership at all. No, you're not called to submit to ungodly leadership. Neither are you called to submit to false teaching by ungodly leadership. And indeed, this is not how the church elders are supposed to lead God's people. What kind of leadership does Scripture call women to submit to? Listen to what Jesus says. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So biblical authority is not about power. Biblical authority is not even about decision-making or you know, kind of holding the reins. No. Biblical authority is about being a slave. Biblical authority is about being a servant of all. You know, elders are called to exercise this kind of biblical authority. Elders are called to shepherd, to pastor, to love, and to lay down our lives for the sake of the church, including the women in the church. Now, this is what it means to be elders in the church. We'll, we'll think about this more next week. But this is the kind of leadership that women are called to submit to, the, the kind of leadership that builds up, the kind of leadership that lays down life for the sake of someone else, the kind of leadership that's humble, that's servant-minded, that exercises its authority as a slave of Christ. So, so, the, so what Paul is saying is that women don't, don't resist leaders who are put in place by God to lead you to Christ. Right? Don't, don't resist leadership that's put in place to lead you to follow Jesus. That's what, Paul's, that's what Paul is saying to these women in the Ephesian church. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives two reasons why women should submit to the teaching and leadership of the elders. Firstly, it's because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Right? By, by creating man first, uh, God, is en God entrusted the man with the responsibility to love, the responsibility to lead, the responsibility to nurture, the responsibility to protect. You know, like the first in harm's way, right? That, that's, the, that's the role of the man. And God has entrusted to men this responsibility. So male eldership in the church, you know, it's not because of so the reason that Paul gives for why the women are, are to submit, it's not because of culture, it's not because of tradition, you know, because we've always done things this way. It's not because of pragmatism, because the men are more gifted than the women or the men know the Bible more. No, it's not, it's not for any of those reasons. The reason is because God has created an order for creation and, and we are merely following His created order. Now, it's, it's, it's because we are trusting God that the, his, his plan is good and perfect for mankind. 
you know, women have suffered all kinds of sin and injustice at the hands of oppressive, abusive, and chauvinistic men, even in the church. But, this, but what Scripture says is that God created male and female, both in His, both in his image and both equal in His sight. We need, to, we need to understand that, that, that Scripture is very clear that men and women are created equal in God's image, equal in His sight. But God made us equal but different. Equal but different. Why? So that we complement each other. You know, it's like that cheesy line from Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. You know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm dating myself there. Uh, yeah, we're meant to complement each other as male and female equal but different. You know, that, that's how I think about Claire, you know, my, my precious wife. She doesn't do all that I do. I don't do all that she does. But I'm so grateful for her because I, I can say this without doubt that she completes me. She, she fills me. She fills my weaknesses. She strengthens me in my weaknesses. And, and she's my complementary helper that whom God has given entrusted to me for, for my good, and, and I trust that I'm also given to her for her good. I mean, that's, that's what it means to complement each other. You know, we don't do the same thing, but we help each other to fulfill God's purposes for our lives. You know, one, one example of that is when we, when we do our devotions with our two boys. You know, some evenings, uh, I'll read the Bible. Some evenings, Claire will read the Bible. Uh, some evenings, I'll pray. Some evenings, Claire will pray. Some evenings, I'm not there, so Claire will do it. You know, that, that's how we partner with one another in the work of discipling our two boys. We complement each other, working towards the purpose that God has set out for us. You know, we have different roles, but we, use, but we do our roles with the same end in mind, for the glory of God. So living God's way means living according to God's design for men and women. God is calling men to lead and love self-sacrificially as elders in the church and as husbands and fathers in the home. Women are called to be helpers to the elders in the church, helpers to their own husbands in the home. You know, we, we are God's new creation, and, and when God makes us anew, God is restoring in us what He intended men and women to be. The second reason Paul gives is because Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, this is another tricky verse, right? What does it mean? Does it mean that Adam wasn't at fault? No, I don't think it means that. It doesn't mean that the woman, it, it does not mean that the woman was uh, inferior or more gullible. It doesn't mean that. What, what Paul is saying, you know, the point that Paul is making, is that at, at the fall, Genesis 3, God's created order was turned upside down, right? The, the man was supposed to lovingly lead his wife, Eve, and both of them were supposed to have dominion over the creatures, right? That, that's the order that God has set out in Genesis 1. But what happened in Genesis 3 was that who was calling the shots? The serpent. The serpent was calling the shots, was telling the woman what to do, and the man was passive. That's the thing about Genesis 3. The man was passive, the man failed to lovingly lead and shepherd his wife. So what did the man do? The man simply just listened to his wife, and the wife led the man into sin. So that's what it means. The, the order of creation was turned upside down in Genesis 3. So it's nothing to do with Eve's gullibility or inferiority. In fact, if anything, it has to do with Adam's failure as a man to lead and love his wife. Now, the man failed to protect Eve from temptation, and, and so she led him into sin. And Paul's point in, in citing that example from Genesis 3 is that bad things happen when God's created order is turned upside down. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he says, women, submit, because this is in line with what God has intended. It's good. It's for our blessing. But as a result of that inversion of that order, men and women fell into sin, but verse 15 points us to the true hope that we have in the gospel. 
Another tricky verse. You know, this, this passage is full of tricky verses. <laughs> what does it mean, right? That the woman shall be saved, she shall be saved through childbearing. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no hope of salvation for single women who have no kids. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you know, women who don't have kids cannot be saved. It doesn't mean that at all. We know that this is not salvation by works, not salvation by having children, because we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. So, so what, what is Paul saying here? Women should be saved through childbearing. So I've, only, I've come across two interpretations that are compelling, but, but you, know, you can think about both of these two. One interpretation is that the childbearing refers to the birth of Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that women shall, shall be saved through the birth of Jesus, ultimately through Jesus himself, through faith in Jesus himself, because we know Jesus was born of a woman, of a virgin. So that, that could be what it means. A woman should be saved through childbearing. The other interpretation, the other possible interpretation, is that childbearing represents a woman's unique role. Right? I mean, this is the one thing a woman can do that a man cannot do. <laughs> childbearing. So, so Paul cites childbearing as, as a representative uh, of, of the woman's unique role as woman. Childbearing. doesn't mean that all women need to bear children, but it does mean that this is, you know, this is the, the call that God has placed upon women in general. Childbearing. So, so what Paul is saying is that a woman, if she carries out her God-given role, by tr and, and trusting in Christ to enable her, she shall be saved. If she has faith in Christ, He's the one who enables her to live God's way according to His created order. And a woman should be saved by doing that as she follows Jesus in her life. So, so that could be the second way of understanding this verse. But either way, when we come to verse 15, what Paul is encouraging women is to really look to Christ, to look to Jesus, to put your faith in Him and to walk God's way, trusting that He is able to enable you to follow Him, to live God's way. So what does this mean for us as a church? I want to close by giving a couple of things for us to think about. What does this mean for us as a church, having looked at this passage? Four things for us to think about. Number one, now, we need to know how we should live according to God's design for us as men and women. You know, we're created equal, but different. And as women, as men, we need to know what is God calling us to as men and women. So sign up for the upcoming Men of Grace and Women of Grace classes. Learn more about biblical manhood and womanhood. What it means, to, what it means for you to be a godly man? What does it mean for you to be a godly woman? as a single, as a husband or wife, as a father or mother. You know, there are more details in the ministry guide, so do sign up for that. Second point, you know, we must encourage men in the church to be examples of Christ-like servant leadership and self-sacrificial love. Men, we, we, we simply need to step up. You know, oftentimes, the men don't get it, but we should. And, and God is calling us to step up as men. Now, men, we cannot be passive as Adam was passive in the garden. Now, God is calling us to love and, and to serve our sisters in Christ. Now, men, men God is calling us to, to nurture the women in the church so that they can express their gifts and abilities whom God has given to them. And, and men, we have the responsibility to lead and shepherd our, the women in our lives in this way. This, this is a wonderful quote by Jonathan Lehman. You know, Jonathan was here preaching for us last year. This is what he wrote. Women are often stuck having to take initiative and leadership in churches because men fail to do so. But to the extent men work hard in the garden of the church, sowing the seed and tilling the dirt, Christian women have good work to do by helping those men. They do this by following the leadership of worthy men by extending the word's work into areas in which it can be more difficult for men to travel, as in the lives of children or young women. You know, he, he speaks truth because as, as a man, I can't disciple women in the church in the same way. It would just be unwise. 
It'd be unwise for me to sit down and meet with a lady one-on-one to do Bible study who's not my wife. It would just be unwise to do that. But women, you have the opportunity to disciple one another, to extend the reach of God's Word throughout the church. And that is a wonderful calling and, and privilege responsibility. Number three, we must encourage and equip women to form deeper relationships with other women and to teach and disciple one another. And I'm so encouraged that so many of you women meet in Bible studies, you meet one-on-one to read the Bible with one another. I mean, I'm so encouraged by these things that you're doing and and I pray that God will continue to grow us in these areas in the church, that more women would be in one another's lives, older women meeting with younger women to help one another become more like Jesus. Men, we, have to, we, need, we need to be doing the same things as well. We should be discipling one another in the same way as the women are discipling one another. Number four, we, we must empower women to actively serve the Lord faithfully and fruitfully. Now, when we come to a text like 1 Timothy 2, we, we mustn't say less than it says, but at the same time, we mustn't say more than what the text actually says. So we need to be clear about what 1 Timothy 2 actually says. It says, women are not to preach or be elders in the church, but there are many, many other ways that Scripture lays out for women to serve the church. Women can and should be teaching other women and children. Women can help with counselling. Women can serve as deacons. More on this next week. Women can lead Bible studies. Women can do evangelism and missions. Women can involve can get involved in mercy ministries. I mean, there's so many areas in the life of the church that women can and should be pursuing. So we must be careful when we come to 1 Timothy 2 to not make it say more than it really says. You know, these are challenging, perhaps counter-cultural truths for our time. And God is calling us as men and as women to live His way, not the way of the world. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways. And God is calling us to trust Him in how we live our lives. You know, God is calling us to live His way because He's good. And, and we live God's way so that the world can see what God is like. And we live God's way so that we as a church can be a display of His glory to the world. So that when people come in among us, they will truly see God. That's why we live God's way. Come, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call us to follow you, to live your way. And Father, we do pray that you help us to be humble, help us to glorify you in how we live together as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise as we respond in this